Well, good morning. I'm so happy to see you on the room and see your faces. Thanks for joining us online and out in the parking lot as well. Really, really happy to be here. You may notice uh, that it's kind of a, got a 50s theme to it. And so um, some of you young folks don't understand black and white, but that's how things used to be. And the other thing you're going to notice is that a lot of our stuff is written in cursive. Oh no, right? So I'll try to speak the word slowly, and if you can't read the cursive on the screen, this would be a really good time to pull up your Bible, because the little scriptures that I'm going to read are also going to be in cursive. So we're going to be in Luke 10 today. You can see exactly where we are, uh, verses 38 through 42. But let me just catch you up to speed. Uh, For nearly a year now, we've been slowly just kind of taking a trot through the gospel of Luke. So Luke is a book of the Bible, but more than a book of the Bible, he's an actual human being, like a real, genuine human being. He was a doctor who was hired by a rich, what we believe, Roman official to go and investigate whether or not Jesus was actually who he says he was, and what he said that he would do, whether or not he actually did it, right? So this guy named Theophilus hires Luke, and Luke goes and he writes an entire book, 1,158 verses of a book. Uh, about Jesus and quotes Jesus 568 of those verses, right? So Luke, doctor turned investigative journalist, spends years, if not a decade, doing this study. And uh, what he tells us in the very beginning of Luke, two things. One, he tells us how he did his research. He said he went and sat down with all the eyewitnesses. This is really, really important because we're going to read about Mary and Martha today. We can, we can deduce that Luke probably sat down and had this conversation with Mary and Martha. Pretty, pretty neat. So he sat down with all the eyewitnesses. He went and listened to all the oral traditions. That had been the local pastors. That had been the local philosophers. He would have gone and listened to all those. And he went and read all the written documents. That would have been books like Matthew and Mark, other gospels. We're going to read read and quote something from Matthew's book today. We believe Luke had already writ, uh, read that one. And, uh, and then he would have also ri- uh, went, went and read uh, genealogies and deeds and all sorts of stuff. And he tells us he compiles all this evidence. evidence. So you can imagine this is like a, a trial. And, G- uh, and Luke has gotten all the eyewitnesses to t- testify. And now he's gone and gotten all these written documents, to, you know, to, to put in as written evidence. And he says he gathers all these things, and this is why. So that we, he writes all these things so that we, you and I, Theophilus, can have certainty of the things you've been taught. Whole book. A whole book, right? 1,151 verses, all with one very specific thesis, and it's this. Luke wanted us. Luke wanted Theophilus to have certainty of the things you've been taught. And I think all of us, and we saw this last summer, would love to have certainty, right? When the world is really, really chaotic, really, really a mess, what you do, what we should do is you cling to what you know to be true. When everything else gets really, really crazy, you cling to what you know to be true. And so Luke does that for Theophilus and goes, I write these things so you can have certainty of the things you've been taught. Really, really important. So uh, when you go, well, who was... What was being taught and who was teaching? He's talking about Jesus. So that's why he quotes him 568 of those verses, right? The things you've been taught. And so what did Jesus teach about? Was it about how to get to heaven? Maybe. Was it about how to have a good marriage? Maybe. Was it about what you should do with your money? Maybe. What you should do with your heart? Maybe. Is it about behaving? Ah, oh, possibly. But all those things weren't kind of the main point of Jesus' talk. He wasn't really that interested in teaching you that when you die one day, you can be beamed up somewhere, right? That that is not the main goal of what Jesus taught. And this is such an amazing thing. The whole Gospel of Luke, all of Jesus' teachings can point to a very specific thing. And 92 times in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are four different biographies written by eyewitnesses and, you know, investigators about Jesus' life. 92 times what Jesus came to teach us about shows up. And it's used interchangeably either as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, okay? So the whole big idea is Jesus is saying you can get access to the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this world's really broken. You would agree. And the king of this world is really, really broken. You would agree that there's evil in this world. Yep, you would agree. But there's a new king and a new kingdom. And Jesus is going, I'm the king and you're invited into the kingdom. And you go, oh, I want that kingdom. How do you do that? This is a really, really important piece. And the scripture tells us it's from faith. Believing even when your senses tell you otherwise. Even you go, there's no way there could be a kingdom of heaven that could be in our midst. Ah, oh, yeah, maybe there is. And the Bible tells us, Paul, one of the writers of two-thirds of the books of the New Testament, tells us that faith comes from hearing. 
And hearing comes from the word of Christ. So it's so profound today as we're literally going to read some of Jesus' words that are going to help us understand the kingdom of God. And you're going to be able to hear this. And many of you are going to be able to place your faith in this. And I understand if you're going, ah, I'm not so sure about this. This is really, really weird and strange. And you're telling me to believe in this fairy tale God. I'm just going, hey, hey. This guy named Luke probably had the same feelings at one point. This guy named Luke thought that all of his hope and joy would come from the medical practice, all of his education, and all of his pedigree. But what's interesting about this guy named Luke is we can assume that when he starts this thing, he's not really 100% certain of the whole thing. And this guy named Luke sits and he investigates. And then he writes this story, the Gospel of Luke. And then he does something really, really crazy. He's so transformed by the study and what God does in his heart through it, about this kingdom, that he decides to write the sequel to it. So he actually writes what's called the, God, uh, the book of Acts, which is uh, short for the actions of the apostles, these first century guys who kind of lean in and believe these things that follow Jesus, right? And he writes this, and he tells the story of what it looks like for these people to believe that they lived in the kingdom of God in the here and now. And what's really strange about the book is he goes from talking about those people as a narrator to talking about him as one of the people in the group. He goes from they to we, right? And so you're talking about science, medical doctor, well-learned, who gets transformed by hearing about Christ and then finally responding in faith. And so we're studying a guy who probably started out as a skeptic, definitely was writing to skeptics, so we get to kind of wrestle through this together. So we've just been slowly working through that, okay? And so what we've been looking at very specifically lately is going, okay, if you're telling me the kingdom of God is here now, you tell me I can live in heaven now? Well, there's all sorts of brokenness. There's all sorts of evil. My world is a mess. My finances are a mess. My marriage is a mess. My family is a mess. Like, you don't—how in the world could that be the kingdom of heaven? How do I live in it now? And you've been asking, okay, what are those real specific steps? What do we do to live in the kingdom of heaven? If this is true, then how do we get access to it now? And so we decided to put very, very specific feet for you. And so what we've seen is Jesus has gathered these 12 guys and started teaching them. Luke captures that teaching. And then he splits them up in pairs and sends them out into community to go and start sharing this news with other people. In other words, hey, go and experience what it's like to live in the kingdom. They go out, they come back, and now there's no longer just 12 of them. There's at least 72 of them, right? And so these guys come back, and he spends about four to six months teaching them more about this thing that Luke is telling us about, the kingdom of heaven. And then he allows them to be practitioners, and he takes these 72, and he splits them up in pairs, 36 pairs. And then he sends them out to live in the kingdom of heaven in the here and now. And they come back and they're just mesmerized. They're just like, you're not going to believe this. And Jesus is like, well, yeah, I'm kind of going to believe it, right? And they go, and they and it literally said they returned with joy, meaning they were so filled with life, living in the kingdom of God. And Jesus gives us a picture. He goes, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw evil one, you know, kind of overcome with light by people living in it. But then it says, don't rejoice in that. Instead, rejoice that you're in my book. Rejoice that you're in the family, right? So this, this familiar picture of you get to be in and live in the kingdom of heaven now, and you get to do it together. Hence the purpose of a church. We get to do this together. And then Jesus gives us, Luke gives us kind of behind the scenes where he quotes Jesus. And what Jesus says there is, I rejoice for your Holy Spirit. So what led Jesus to the joy was the Holy Spirit. And you go, what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that if you are even possibly considering this, like possibly considering that there could be a God who loves you, that there could be a Savior who died for you so that you don't have to pay the pain and price for your own sin for all eternity, right? If you're at least considering that, if right now your eyes and your ears are open, there's only one reason for that according to the Scriptures. You can read all of them. You can read in 1 Corinthians 12. You can read other places where it tells us that the only way that our eyes can ever be open is through the Spirit. So if you're listening to this and you're at least slightly open to it, that is not a work of you by yourself. That's a work of God kind of trying to work in you right now. So if you're at least open to this, then that's a real possibility, right? Faith comes from hearing. Hearing comes from the word of Christ. It's impossible to please God without faith, but we can't do faith on our own. So Jesus rejoices in this Holy Spirit. This is why it's really, really important. Because what, what we're going to look at over the next several weeks, all summer long, is we're going to look at making the next right choice. Our goal here at this church is to make it simple for every single one of you to take your next right step with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, 
for the glory of God forever. Got it? So we were just going, well, here's your next right step. But the reality is you can't even take that next right step on your own. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible for you to do the next right thing over and over again. So what Jesus rejoices in is that he gives us his spirit, meaning we can walk with Jesus now because his spirit allows us to do it. His spirit allows us to make those choices. So if you make this choice today to choose better, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus celebrates in the Holy Spirit. And you're going, I don't really understand that. And I'm like, God, oh, me neither. I don't understand it at all. But I will promise you experientially, it is real and it's true. And the last year of my life is, uh, for me personally, a testament to it. Everything I thought was on my own, everything I thought I would need to do, that's all changed. And so again, I'm going to show you another passage today of what you need to do to take the next right step. And let me just remind you what the step was last week. And we're going to double down on it this week. And then next week, Pastor Gary is going to triple down on just the step. So three weeks, just to take the same step. You ready? And so here's the step. What I told you is there's kind of two different things. We can either live going after and chasing after our security and safety. Or we can actually surrender all those things and start serving others. We saw the story of the Good Samaritan. You can go back and listen. But where those things kind of originate, where their birth in us, kind of the genesis of those things, actually come from a different thing. Where surrender and service comes from a space, I told you the reason that the Good Samaritan was able to kind of respond is he had space in his life. He had money and he had time. We saw this priest and this Levite who didn't respond. And we can guess probably it's because they were crammed full. They had these justifications that someone else needed them. They had to get somewhere else or maybe they didn't have the funds to take care of it, right? And so when we create space in our life, all of a sudden it gives us an opportunity to have the awareness to surrender and to serve others. Got it? Now, on the other side, we have this. Or we can focus on our security and safety. And here's where that comes from. It's our, it's our mini God. The highest level, this is the God that all of us worship. All of us, all of us in this room at some point have laid our heart and soul down in worship of this God. Self-preservation, right? Self-preservation. Donald Miller writes in this book uh, called uh, um, uh, Blue Like Jazz. He talks about this thing called the lifeboat theory. And he says that if, if an alien were to come down on our planet and make an assessment of what uh, the whole purpose of life was about, they would make this assessment. Like, you know, some, some outsider coming in and going, why do humans live? They would say it's all about what he called the lifeboat theory. That the whole goal is there's only so many seats on the lifeboat. And your goal is to make sure you get to stay on the lifeboat, right? If there's only 12 seats and there's 14 people, you got to be one of the 12 most valuable. If there's six seats and there's eight people, you got to be one of the six most valuable, right? And the way that you do that is you perform and you perform and you do and you create and you build a resume and you uh, put money in your bank account, right? All these things, because the reason is we think we have to preserve ourselves. But here's the problem with that. For us, if we're trying to deduce what our life, some goal is, right? Many of us, if not most of us, would say, my goal, we wouldn't use these words, right? But our soul, our gut, major goal is to somehow, in the far future, arrive safely and comfortably at death. That's what our goal is. We don't wouldn't say it that way, but man, if I can extend my life as long as possible and have such a peaceful life. Now, all of us know that at some point we're going to arrive safe, at, at death. We want it to be, we want to extend the period as long as possible, and we want it to be as comfortable and as safe and as secure as possible. Why? Because we have this mini-God called self-preservation. But the problem is, Jesus said it this way, if you want to chase after the kingdom, if you want to love your neighbor, he says, if you do these things, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jesus says. So, so important. He says, do this, and you will really or surely live. In other words, if you haven't done this, if you focus all your time and energy on this, even if you're not a Christian, this is going to explain so much. If you do all this, then there is something in you, and you know it, we know it, right? I know it for my own self. There's something to me that is longing for some kind of fulfillment and some kind of joy that just seems to be absent. Why? Jesus is saying, you want in on the kingdom, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You get in the kingdom, and then finally you'll live. I've told you this two weeks in a row, right? If there's a fish laying out on the asphalt right now, you would go, that's not good. That fish is never going to be happy. It's never going to thrive. We know that. If it's just flopping around, what would you do? Either you'd pick it up and, you know, clean it and eat it, right? Depending on what kind of fish it is. Or you would pick it up, put it in a bucket of water, and try to find, maybe toss it back here in this pond, right? Why? Because you know that fish was not designed to live on concrete. 
That fish was not designed to live on land. So the only way that fish could thrive would be to put it back in the water. If that's the case, this explains so much why we're flopping around and so unhappy. Why there's so much chaos in our life and we keep running from thing to thing, thinking it's going to be the thing, but it always leaves us empty. The reason being is you weren't designed for self-preservation. You weren't designed to be the king of your own kingdom. You were hardwired to live in the kingdom. And so do this, and you will live. And so we're going, okay, Jesus, if you came to teach us this, how to live in the kingdom, well, what do we do next? So I told you last week, uh, the way is space. Create space in your life. Now, I'm going to double down on this today. Uh, but I, did, I wanted to use this word uh, yesterday, or last week. But uh, I wanted to stick with the alliteration theme. I'm not, I'm, so, and so I didn't have a good M for self-preservation right? And so what I was wrestling with last week, and I think it'll be really helpful for this week, is here's what it is. We have these things at war, and this is actually for Christians too, which is really, really nice. There you go. Let me get these things out of our way. That we have to make a choice each and every day, particularly for those of us as Christians, right? To figure out whether or not how we live in the kingdom, is it about manufacturing it ourselves? Making these movements happen. Like, I struggle with this over and over again. Last year's been a glorious time for me of getting to the end of something for years and going, God, I'm not sure if you did that or if I did it. Was that you or was that me? In other words, I thought it was possible to actually manufacture a move of God. No, I just was able to manufacture something on my own, maybe with a little bit of help of the Spirit. But at the end of the day, I still wasn't sure if it was me or if it was God. And I'm going, ah, oh, Lord, I'd just love for you to do what only you can do. And the only way to do that, the only opportunity is actually to create margin in your life. So we're going to double down on the margin. Told you, double, then triple down. And we're going to see what manufacturing, trying to be in control of your own life, trying to produce whatever fruit on your own, right? Manufacturing, you run something down an assembly line and you have an end goal to produce a very specific thing and we work really hard to try to manufacture the good in our life and the joy in our life, and it is completely impossible. I promise you. So we get to choose, well, how do we do that? Is it manufacturing or is it margin? And here's what happens as you create margin in your life. Really, really easy. As you create margin in your life, here's what you'll choose always. The first things. That doesn't make a lot of sense right now, but I promise it will. First things. And manufacturing. I wrestle with the words many things or just second things. And I wanted to stick with second things because I was reading uh, about a year ago now, a little bit more than a year ago, reading through uh, St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo's writings. And he talks so candidly, you know, hundreds and hundreds, over a thousand you know, years ago, long, long time ago. Talks about the, his greatest struggle as a pastor, and I just identified with it. And it's not that I cho- choose bad things. I, I just chose second things and tried to make them first things. Like, for example, family. Family, God loves family. But family can't sustain me. It can't do those things. And so our, God loves learning. And God lo- wants me to learn, right? God loves that I'm learning the Bible and teaching it. But that is, if that's the highest level, that I gotta learn, I gotta learn, or my family's gotta be perfect, or my family has to be together, all those kind of things, right? All those things. Those are second things. And then it creates a lot of anxiety when you make it a first thing because it can't save me. It can't fulfill me. And so I'm finding things that I thought would be the things, and they're good things, but they can't be the best things or chief things, as St. Augustine said. Let me read this quote to you. We'll read it twice. So if you want to take a picture of it, great. If not, you can come back to it, but I'll read this now and read it a little bit later. This is what St. Augustine said about this. The chief good must be something. You ready? This is, this is the first thing, right? The chief good must be something which cannot be lost against the will, Right? If your chief good is your 401k, then you ride the stock market with lots of stress and anxiety. If your chief good is being a mom or dad, right, then there's this big anxiety of what happens when my kid grows up? What happens when they go off to school? What happens if I mess this up? What happens if something happens to them, right? All these things, things that really do matter, right? Savings do matter, all those things, right? Uh, uh, Lost against the will. For no one, hear this, can feel confident regarding a good, good which he knows can be taken from him explains a lot of our anxiety, right? We love things, like you'll have a really good, enjoyable moment, and then that whisper will be good. What happens if you lose this? What happens if it goes bad? What happens, whatever it is, right? So cannot be lost in that sense. For no one can feel confident regarding a good which he knows can be taken from him, although he wishes to keep and cherish it. But if a man feels no confidence regarding the good which he enjoys, how can he be happy? while in such fear of losing it. 
So all these things, right? He's going, Augustine learned, man, I can't make ministry or our church or my reputation. I cannot make it the primary objective of my life. I cannot make self-preservation my goal because then I live in fear of preserving it and losing it all the time. So he goes, this is what he says. He says, man's chief good is not the chief good of the body only, but the chief good of the soul. So today, we're really, really, really going to focus on how do we create margin in our life. Again, double down. Last week of space, same thing. And uh, double down this week, triple down you know, next week so that we can, in that margin, actually choose first things. And by that, I mean the kingdom and its righteousness that Jesus provides to us, right? So how do we do that? If you're brand new to this, be really, really helpful, and I hope you get it right because many of us haven't. Many of us learned all sorts of other stuff about our performance and all those things in the church world. So if you're brand new to this, you are blessed to be here to start sorting through it. If, if you've been in this a while, I'm going to give you an opportunity in that last song to actually sing some words of repentance. I'm going, God, I've made things that shouldn't be first things, first things. Okay? So Jesus has just taught a really, really important parable. And this is where we get uh, that do this and you'll live with the Good Samaritan. And then he's going to move about his day. Now, I remember a couple weeks back, uh, he was in Galilee. That's a little kind of podunk state uh, with lots of, you know, uh, farmers. And it said a couple weeks ago that he set his eyes on, towards Jerusalem, meaning he knows that he is getting ready to go and be brutally beaten, you know, fought, and then hung on a cross completely naked where he's going to die and people are going to scoff at him while he's dying. So he sets his eyes on his mission, which was to make the kingdom of heaven available to us. That's why he said, that's why John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of God is near. There is an access point. Only one person can, can pay the admission price. You can't earn it on your own. You are not good enough. The one who can, Jesus, uh, is going to set his eyes towards Jerusalem. So they start making this journey. We saw him stop in Samaria. And then a little afterwards, pretty neat. You know, he tells the story of a good Samaritan because he can pick up on the the judginess of his, his disciples, right? And so he's setting his eyes, and now he's moving to another state called a, a Judea, right? So this is where Jerusalem's going to be. And so Jesus spends most of his ministry in Galilee as his home base, and now for like, he's going to set his eyes towards Jerusalem. And what we're going to see for like the last six months of Jesus' life, he gets a new home base called Bethany. Bethany is on the base of Mount Olives, Jesus goes up there to pray. Really good view that if you go up there, you could see Jerusalem, right? And so he's going he's gonna to set up in this town called Bethany with some good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You're going to be introduced to them today. And this is going to be his home base. He's going to go into Jerusalem, come back, go into Jerusalem. So this is the home base. So he set his eyes towards Jerusalem, and now he's walking here. And so he gets there, and we're going to uh, read about two sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, last thing I'll say on this before I read this new passage to you is many of you are familiar with this passage. And many of you... Uh, really are frustrated with this passage. And others of you have used this passage as good ammunition not to do anything, right? So this is a very complicated passage. And so if my kids are in the room, they would tell you this because I preach it all the time at them. They literally quote it all the time. One of the dangers of being so familiar with a passage, reading it so much, right, is being overexposed to it, right? I, the way that I explain it is I grew up on the beach, right? Literally, Christmas morning, we uh, after we, uh, you know, did all of our Christmas stuff, we threw our Christmas tree off the balcony of our condo in Amelia Island, Florida. That's why, Ju uh, that's why Julie and I got married in Amelia. That's why Amelia's name is Amelia. Threw it off the balcony and then threw it in the dumpster, right? So my, my front yard was Amelia Island Coast, right? And I didn't even appreciate it. Then I move away, go to Montana, didn't see the beach for four years, right? And now I'm here. And so we're going to Florida this week, and I promise you I will enjoy every moment on that sand, even when I'm eating it in the sandwiches, right? Why? Because what happens is overexposure leads to underappreciation. Got it? Just part of it, right? I know lots of ways to explain this. You're complaining about your house and how messy it is to clean it, but at one point in your life, you prayed for that house and that amount of square footage, right? Many of you are frustrated right now with your children, but do you remember when you prayed for those kids to be healthy? And guess what healthy kids do? They run, and they scream, and they yell, right? There's just something about these things. And so being overexposed to it leads us to a place not to appreciate it as much. Got it? So when you think about the first century, when Luke is writing this, there are people who are going to hear this for the very first time. They didn't have their own Bible. They didn't get it on the Bible app where it popped up every day. And so when someone would open up the scriptures and read them out loud, 
They were like, oh, give it to me. These are the words of God. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing comes from the word of Christ. And so they would have been so consuming it. So I just ask you, if you're familiar with the story, could you throw away all the familiarity? If you've been exposed a lot to the story, would you just throw away the overexposure? And just let's just imagine that we're reading this for the very first time. Remember, I tell you over and over again that God's word is both timeless and timely, meaning it was written to a very specific audience looking for a very specific thing 2,000 years ago, but it's also timeless, meaning God knew that you would be the crowd in this room and you would be the people in the parking lot and online and today to read this very specific passage. From the foundations of the earth, God had this plan in place. And from the foundations of the earth, he had his spirit hover over us so we can really, really gather this and understand it. So let's look at it with those eyes and let's see what happens. So here we go. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. So Jesus has been with this crowd and now he's going to show up at the home of Martha and Mary's house. Here's what it says. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered the village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So this is Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Let me read that again. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him to her house. So they're on the way. Jesus enters the village, and Martha, this is her home. Got it? This is her home. She welcomes in Jesus. Literally, Jesus is showing up in her house. Now, could you imagine this? Right? I, like, I don't know how you feel about people showing up unannounced. Maybe she got a day's notice if God sent some people ahead, or they literally could just have shown up. No. This is the God of the universe showing up in your house. You got it like, I mean, I, we, I've shared this, we, we were kind of a messy family, so we only used lamp lights because we didn't want all the bugs to be seen or whatever, right? And uh, I can remember when someone pulled up in the driveway, we would sprint and we would just shove things everywhere, right? Just underneath the couch or anything, just shove it, right? Just that panic of what if people actually know how we really live, right? Whatever those things are. You don't do that, but, you know, growing up in a pastor's home, we kind of felt some weird pressure there, some messy pressure, right? And so all that stuff going on, and so Jesus shows up at Martha's house, okay? Probably some anxiety. And she had a sister called Mary. This is Mary and Martha. This is Lazarus' brother. Jesus is going to bring him back to life a little bit later in the story. But these are people that, these are basically Jesus is going to be Jesus' best friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Really good people. So this is maybe, I don't know if this is the first introduction. I don't know if they're fully in. I have no idea at this point. And she had a sister called Mary, and watch what it says, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. First of all, this is really inappropriate. This is not normal. Women, this is why I love the gospel. Most people go like, you know, religion and Christianity is so you know, archaic and closed-minded and primitive, you know, like they're, nope, just the opposite. Jesus actually is the one who established and redeemed women in the greatest capacity. Literally, he charges another Mary with the the very first gospel preaching, that's Mary Magdalene, when she shows up at the tomb, he got, uh, the angels say, go and tell everyone about this. Really, really amazing. So Jesus is one who loves women, but the, everybody else looking in the room would have been like, that's really inappropriate. First of all, she shouldn't be that close to him. Second of all, how dare her sit and listen? She's taken up a spot close to Jesus that could have been better used if it were a dude. That's just part of the culture there. And so Jesus is teaching, right? Luke wants us to have certainty of the things we've been taught. This seems like a pretty important time to, to learn. And so Jesus is teaching, and Mary is sitting at his feet. You know the story, but remember, just stay with me here. If, if you don't, really, really great. You're going to get to see it for the first time. So you got Mary, and you got Martha. and why, uh, So you got Mary, who is sitting at the feet. Martha, we're going to find out, is really, really busy. And um, this is interesting. And I almost had you do name tags this week, uh, but I thought, oh, it's going to take me a little long to get in the review and get going, so it's probably not worth having all this stuff. But I, I, uh, you got two different people that are kind of bent different ways, right? You got um, uh, Martha, who's really active, and I would just say has, you know, a better work ethic, in my opinion, That's, but I'm messed up here. Like, I love Martha. I'm like, yeah, Martha, 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 right? You know, like, Martha is my kind of uh, person who gets stuff done. You got Mary, who, I mean, Martha, who is... Uh, kind of bent towards activity and doing. And you got Mary, who is bent more towards uh, being, right? So R.C. Sproul says that um, uh, Mary was a BB and Martha was a doobie, right? Not, yeah, not the kind that, yeah, but Mary, BB, doobie. And you're like, I haven't heard that time, that word in a while, yeah. And so, uh, so you got these two people bent different ways. One is more bent towards activity, right? Leading 
assembling, getting stuff done. The other one is bent more towards contemplative things. Ugh, ugh, you know, like just sitting and doing nothing, right? Just sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting some more and sitting some more. And then making it about late because they're just sitting and sitting, right? So you got one bent towards active, one bent more towards contemplative, right? And so one's going to be administrative, going to get a lot of stuff done. The other probably isn't. Got these two different wirings. And so have this tension between the family right here, which is really beautiful because this is what family has. And it's like, I love the church for the reason. Of course, you're not always going to get along. Of course, you're going to frustrate each other. Our website name is clcfamily.church. That's what family does, right? I'm going to be 13 hours in a car today with my family in the back seat, right? And I just, I actually have already recorded stop it. Just stop it. Stop it really, really loud because I'm afraid I'm going to lose my voice. So every time I'm just going, stop it. Stop it. Just stop it. And then I go, keep your hands to yourself. Everybody keep your hands to yourself, right? So I've already recorded it. We're all ready to go, right? Because that's what family does. And so you got this family and you got this tension. Everybody with me? Family and tension. And now watch what happens. But Martha, uh, so, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to us teaching. Okay, got Mary and Martha, right? And the very next verse. But Martha was distracted with much serving. So Luke just leans into this. He doesn't glorify what she's doing He's not going, she was working hard and gives all sorts of caveats. By the way, we can probably assume that the way we get this message is probably from Mary and Martha, right? So this is pretty neat that we get this. And like, so Luke would have probably sat down with him. But Martha was distracted with much serving. That word serving is the same word we get for deacons. Very, very important role that we see in Acts where uh, the, the church family gets bigger and they have obstacles and chaos and they put people there just to serve and care for orphans and widows, right? So this is a very biblical term serving but what's interesting is Luke gives us the commentary that Martha was distracted 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 because of her service don't like this passage because it pierces me right into the soul right just pierces me as someone who's just bent towards getting stuff done so it says she was distracted distracted with much serving Uh, that word literally just means to be drawn away get this The God of the universe is in her presence. And she's being drawn away by tasks. The God of the universe is right here. And she is being drawn away and she's justifying all of it. I promise she is. You're going to see how she justifies it. She is justifying all of it. She has an opportunity to be fully present with the God of the universe in the flesh. You'd like that. She is distracted, drawn away in the same house, the house that probably belongs to her because Mary probably couldn't pay the mortgage payment because she didn't have a job, right? I'm just joking. So, you know, here we go. She's sitting there, Martha's there, and she is distracted and drawn away. And this is what it says. Uh, And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? See this? Tell her then to help me. <laughs> so you got, you got Jesus sitting there. Uh, probably has dirty feet. Mary's still sitting there next to him, and he's teaching, and she's running around and doing a lot of these. <sighs> you know, I'm talking about that huff that you know what, you know, like, oh, I'm supposed to pick up on that. I think I wish I was better at social cues, right? And so, uh, so she's frustrated, lots of frustration, and she <laughs> literally makes a, I mean, this is a a really messy sentence. Let me read it again. Here's what it says. And she went up to him and said, Lord, by the way, that term means boss. Since you're the boss, let me tell you how to do your job. Right? I mean, so this is so messed up. She calls him by the right name, but then treats him like it's her servant. Right? And so she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister, first of all, calls him Lord, goes up with her scoffing and frustration, and then she actually makes a terrible assessment about Jesus. She actually peers in and says, this is who you are. Let me tell you what your motivation is. You see this? Like, in this moment, this is all sorts of complicated. She calls himself, she says Lord, and then she goes, do you not care? In other words, why don't you care about me the way you care about Martha? Right? Do you not care? She is making an assessment about Jesus and his character there. Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? She's left me. I'm abandoned. I'm all by myself. Right? So you even see this, this passage kind of shows up, or this kind of temperament shows up throughout the scriptures. One of my favorite places that shows up is a guy named Elijah. 
And Elijah, who has just had this beautiful moment where God intervened and let, like, in this crazy, crazy way and set things on fire and everybody worshiped God. And then Elijah gets worried about his, this uh, Jezebel who wants to murder him. So he takes off and he goes and hides and he gets in the deep depression. And over and over again, God speaks to him and goes, where are you? Meaning, hey, could you take a little bit of margin and take some space and just be able to self-identify where you are? And guess what he says over and over again? I'm all alone. No one but me. I'm the only one who can do it, right? This, this poor, pitiful Elijah, right? Now, when God doesn't really need, he's going to connect him with a bunch of other people who have the same passion and the same commitment to the Lord. But in this moment, she is in her Debbie Downer sad moment. It's okay. She's allowed to have him. But then he, then he, so you got that. Lord, do you not care that my sister's left me alone? Watch this. Tell her to help me. She literally is telling the God of the universe what to do. Now, when, now I don't even want to be sensitive. I think it's fair. How often do we do that? How often do we come to God, not because we're sitting at his feet, but because we need God to do something for us? And then, I mean, we're gracious enough to then put a contingency on it. But God, if you will do that, then I will do this. You know what I'm talking about? God, 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 if you would fix this, then I'll go to church more often. God, if you'd fix this, then I'll, okay, fine, I'll read my Bible, right? Like there's just like this contingency of connection that we kind of live in. And so she goes to God, and she is literally going, tell her, right? And the reason I know this is because so much, and ah, oh, it's going to be really good next week, so we've got to come back again. We're going to triple down on this idea that so much of our time praying is spent telling God what we want him to do for us. The God of the universe who speaks the whole world into existence, right? And so there's this pendulum uh, that we see in, in Christianity, and we've seen it throughout history, and I'm convinced it's coming back, right? You've got these two pillars of who God is, grace and truth, right? You see it when Jesus uh, talks to the lady who was caught in adultery, and he says, does anyone condemn you? And they, she goes, no, and he says, then neither do I. Grace. But then truth, go and sin no more, right? Jesus models this tension really well. And if you look throughout history, particularly, there's kind of this pendulum that goes really, really heavy on holiness and truth, right? You can see it. And even when you look at the founding of our country, kind of uh, Puritans and Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hand of an angry God, like this deep God is holy and reverent. He's not my homeboy, right? And so there's this deep reverence. But then it gets so overboard that people forget that God is gracious and loving and refers to himself as father over and over again, right? And so then there's this overcorrection to just grace. God loves you, accepts you, whatever you are, you're a cute butterfly, all those things, right? And so it seems like there's been this massive pendulum to go, and I think grace is glorious, so grateful for it, but there is this, this big overcorrection that's all about grace, all about grace. Jesus is all about making me happy. No, he's about making you holy, which is back over here on this side, right? And so we've got to manage this tension of going, God is not your homeboy. He's the God of the universe. He holds every single star exactly where he wants it. He spoke it all into existence. He is not like us. And yet, he calls himself our heavenly father. Jesus refers to him as God the father. He is inviting you into his kingdom, not just as a citizen, but as an heir to the throne of grace and truth, right? And so we get in this part where we can get so overcorrected and God just accepts me as I am and he loves me just as I am. No, he loves you as the way he sees that you're going to be through Jesus Christ, right? So Jesus is at work. The Holy Spirit is at work making us who he wants us to be. And so there's just this side of it's all grace, it's all grace. And so you see Martha in this moment, not that she's experiencing any of the grace, but she is walking in talking to the God about what he should do for her. Now, in fairness, she calls him Lord, so that gets confusing, not even teacher here, but we don't know what her uh, theology is now, right? Is God, is that God incarnate? Is that God in the flesh, or is he just a good teacher, or is he just, a, you know, a nice authority, or is he just a handsome guy? We don't know where she sees him at this point, right? And so you see this, go tell him, tell her to help me. Now watch what he says, watch what he says. But the Lord said, this is verse 41, answered her, Martha, Martha. Uh, this is not, um, 
This would not be the overcorrection and the real deep holiness. How dare you? I'm the God of the universe. This is Martha, Martha. This referring to her name twice in that moment is not the way that I refer to my kids twice. When I'm, you know what I'm saying? Big stuff, Mr. Roberts, right? When I had, you know, like that kind of thing. Sorry about that online if you had me cranked up. Um, but this is very endearing. So you can imagine it as he's sitting there teaching. Everybody's listening, and Martha comes in, butts in, tells him what to do. This isn't, oh, how dare you? This is Paul's, looks her straight in the eyes, and he goes, Martha, Martha. This is sweet and sincere and caring. He wants good for her. He wants her to truly live. Martha, 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 you are anxious. You're anxious, girl. And you're troubled about many things. You're anxious and you're troubled, right? And she's going, no, I'm, I, this, is, this is important, Jesus. My house needs to put together. I want you to have a really good time. I want you to have a good time. I want this to be a really good experience for you. Hey, Martha, Martha. Hey, you're anxious and troubled about many things. That word anxious there in, in the Greek really it literally means um, apart. To be pulled apart. Oh, Martha, you are you have got this whole pie that I want you to fill and enjoy wholeness and you have just gotten so consumed with this second thing. Many things is how he refers to it there. That you have lost sight of the first thing. He answered, you're anxious and troubled. That literally means deeply disturbed. And so it's interesting, you see this in his correction, and we, we struggle with this a whole bunch, is um, when we make first thing, or second things first things, like our identity is in who I am, what I think, what I believe. My identity is in my job. My identity is in my, you know, savings account, whatever those things. What happens here, we get anxious because we're so caught up in that one thing, right? You've chosen second things over first things. And then your identity's deeply connected to it. And so what happens in that when you make second things first things is you are easily offend, offendable. You get offended really, really easy about um, all sorts of stuff from whether or not someone comments on your weight, right? If your identity is so focused on the way that you look or if someone comments on the way you did your job, right? And so we live in a world, you know it, that is so easily offended. Got it? You would agree? No, let's not point fingers. Let's actually go, where am I most easily offended? Right? So we live in a world, and the reason we live in so much offense all the time, taking offense all the time, it's because we have thought it was our job to produce our own salvation, our own identity, and we have figured out what those things are that lead to that declaration. Jobs, money, marriage, whatever those things are, we have leaned into it, or even family, right? Whatever those things are, when we made second things, first things, it leads to this deep offense, and Martha is really offended. And she's convinced in her head she should be offended to the point where she goes and interrupts the God of the universe. And tells him what, she, uh, what he can do to make her offense less. And he goes, Martha, Martha, you're anxious. And you see that word troubled, it literally means offended. You are offended about many things. So as a rubric for you guys, would you just keep an eye on where you're offended? Like this is easy. Like this is easy stuff. This is really gracious of God. I mean, you can keep a journal. Where are you easily offended? Are you offended when that guy pulls in front of you? Why is that? got to do a little bit harder work. Is it because you're in a hurry? Why are you in a hurry? Oh, it's because you need to produce more? Oh, you got to get to work on time because you got to need to be known as the one who does the most. Or maybe you're even known as the punctual person. And that's really important that your identity is those things. We got to start thinking about why we're offended so easily. You're troubled about many things. What's interesting is he's going, Martha, this is an issue, but there's all sorts of issues in this. This is, this is many things that are affecting this, right? So troubled about many things. So how do you solve that? How do you solve that? Margin. Creating space. Sitting still. Asking God to search your heart and speak to you. Not that you've got to fix it. Not that you've got to go on this deep, dark dive and pull, uh, you know, pull up every broken part of your life. It's just creating space and going, God, I've been doing a lot of talking. I just want to do some listening now. God, I've been doing a lot of talking, right? The word prayer means to exchange wishes, which means he needs to speak as well. God, I've been doing a lot of talking. Martha, Martha, 
You're doing a lot of moving and a lot of talking, but you're not doing much listening. So, watch what it says next. You, you know, about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You see this? Many, many things. In fact, there's some manuscripts, depending on when it was written, actually uh, says something, you, you see it in the footnote, note, that some say, a uh, few things are necessary, or only one. I love that, because I don't know if that's the case, but um, if that's the conversation that you see, like in the NIV and others, hey, Mary, Mary, Martha, 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 you're so anxious and troubled over many things. Hey, there are a few things that are necessary. Oh, no, 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 no. There's not even a few things. There's just one. There's just one thing that is necessary. You get this one thing. This, I don't like it because I think there should be many things. I'm really good at juggling many things. So this is good for my identity to have lots of stuff going on and moving lots of things. It gives me a lot of pride. But one thing is necessary. Okay, what is that one thing? Man, this would have had to hurt Martha in the second. She's been doing all the dishes, cleaning the house, doing all the work, paying the mortgage, whatever that is. She has created a home for Jesus to be able to sleep in. And in this moment, Jesus says to her, there's not many things, there's just one thing, and here's the bad news or good news, however you look at this. Mary has chosen the good portion. The good portion. Mary has chosen the good portion. She's chosen the first thing. And here's the good news about that. It won't be taken away from her. Let me read to you that quote again from St. Augustine. Highlight that won't be taken away from her. Watch what it says. The chief good must be something which cannot be lost against the will. Cannot be taken away. For no one can feel, the, feel confident regarding a good which uh, he knows can be taken from him, although he wishes to keep and cherish it. But if a man feels no confidence regarding the good which he enjoys, how can he be happy while in such fear of losing it? This is so important. So he goes, Mary's chosen the right thing, and here's the best part of it. It can't be taken away from her. You see this? This is where joy can just be manifest in such a real way. The God of the universe sees you, knows you, and has called you by name and invited you into his kingdom as an heir to the throne. You are a child of the Most High God. Right? Psalm 45, 10, 11, one of my favorite verses where he talks about like the bridegroom and the bride and God being the, the, the groom and us being the bride. And he goes, listen, O oh daughter, like pay attention. Consider it and give ear. The, forget your people. Forget your father's house. None of those other things. Those are all second things. All second things. Consider and give ear. Forget your people in your father's house. Four. The king is enthralled, captivated by your beauty, right? Not that it's all about you, but he made you and loves you, and he is captivated by you, and he's going to Martha. So honor him for he's your Lord. Hey, hey, Martha. This isn't punishment. I miss you. Martha, I miss you. You've been so caught up in those things that I just miss you. You're my child. I love you. I can't connect with you while you're doing all those things. Like, this is not pain or punishment or discipline. He's going, there's just one thing. I miss you. I miss you, Martha. And here's what I'll tell you. He misses you. Even if you don't know it, even if you don't believe it, even if you don't believe he exists, he misses you. He misses you. He loves you and wants to be close to you. He's not grading you on your performance. There is nothing you could do today to make him love you more. Nothing. There's nothing you could do today on your list that's going to make the God of the universe more happy with you, more thrilled by you, more in love with you. On the flip side, there's nothing you could do today that would make him love you less. He just misses you. You see, we get caught up in that as a grace or holiness. The reality is it's just God. And he is so loving and so caring that he just wants you to enjoy him forever. Can't be taken away from you. But many of us don't know what that experience is like. You know why? You know why I know that? 39 years of life. I had no idea what that experience was like. 19 years as a pastor. Professional one. Paid, right? I had no idea what it was like just to sit still and be known and loved by God. So I'm telling you this as a Martha. Listen, we are built, our world right now is a Martha world and we believe we should add Mary moments. 
The God of the universe has created us and wired us for a merry world with Martha moments. And see, this is where I want to give you the caveats. No, 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 you sit still, you got to sit still, and then you got to go do something. Like, you, please keep serving, but don't do it before you sit at Jesus' feet. I've preached this a dozen times in different capacities, and that's always where I've led it. Yeah, you got stuff to do. So sit at Jesus' feet, then go get on it. But this is not what the scriptures are saying at all. There's no therefore. There's no product at the end. He just says to her, she's chosen the right thing. What if that's true? What if God just wants you to sit with him, be known and loved by him? Not no therefore, no whatever's next, and we'll figure it out as we read through the scriptures. Right, we'll see what God wants for us. But just for a little while, could we just not do that? You see, there's this really beautiful passage in Matthew chapter 6, and I'm not going to read it all, Nikki. I'm just going to highlight 633 in just a second. But this is where Jesus is talking about us being worried about many things. And he just says, you know, see the birds of the air, which of the, you know, all these kind of things. He goes, look, I take care of them. Do you not think I'll take care of you? And kind of this whole idea that you've got to stop worrying. You've just got to choose the first things. Just the first things. Just choose them. Just choose them. It's available to you. It's available to you, right? This is what's so beautiful. Like, even when you go back to the creation story, it says this. Let me read to you what it says. Uh, Genesis 1 describes the days of creation, saying there was an evening, and then there was morning. That's the first day. There was evening, then there was morning. That was the second day. There was evening, then there was morning. That was the third day. And I can keep doing that, right? Do you understand what God is communicating there? That the day starts the night before. The day starts at sunset. Let me show you how our days work. We get up early, maybe we all flip to our phone and grab a quick Bible verse, and then we're out the door and sprinting, right? And we're doing all the day, all the day, all the day, all the day, and all the day. Then we're eating, we're doing all those things, and finally at the end of the night, you go, oh, okay, oh, I should probably think about God. Oh, no, man, I'm too tired, right? And the rhythms of how God designed this thing your day starts at sunset. So when God, it says in, the, in, in Genesis, it says God walked in the garden in the cool of the night. Guess what that means? When the sun went down, God put on his shoes and literally walked into, he didn't, wasn't wearing shoes, but uh, walked into the garden with Adam and Eve. God walked in the garden in the cool of the night. What if? What if we just gotten it all backwards? What if God wants us to rest and enjoy him in the evenings? And go to sleep enjoying him. And then wake up refreshed and renewed to start a day. That we look forward to the next day in that moment of time. The way that creation was wired was rest, then work. Rest, and then work. Long before sin got into the world, this is how it was designed. Rest, and then work. And so Jesus is talking to the people and going, Hey, you got to focus. Here it is. Here it is. This is what I want you for you. This is what I want for you. Don't worry about these things. Don't be anxious about these things. And then he kind of offers this conclusion. And I've not done a great job handling this passage. So I'm going to try to fix that right now. Matthew 6, 33. This is the end of, uh, kind of not the end, uh, on, the, on the kind of the turning point of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. So he's talking about all these things that you worry about. Matthew 6, 33. This is what it says. Instead of worrying about it, Instead of thinking about all these second things, but seek first the kingdom of God. Remember what I'm telling you about? The kingdom of God. Available to you now. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Wait a minute. God's righteousness. God's righteousness. He loves you and he misses you and he wants you to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And this is what he says. And all these things will be added to you. Look, there's stuff in life. I get that. There's complications. But our focus can't be on that. Seek first the kingdom of God. And here's how I've always told you this. I've, I've pulled up that word first and go, here's two different ways to look at uh, this word first. Um, it can be defined of one of two things. First in order or sequence, like A becomes before B, B comes before C, right? That kind of first, first. Or another way to define it, and this is the one I've always gone, think about this this way. That upon which everything else hinges. That upon which everything else hinges. I mean, that's it. See, see, it's not just about first in order. It, instead, it's about just make God the center of those things. And I would go, yeah, that's so true. Make God the center. Like, seek first. But what if it's actually both? What if it's not just hinge your life on God? What if the way by which you hinge your life on God is actually just to seek him literally first? Before you have that argument. Before you offer that correction. Before you go to work. What if you actually did seek him first, right? And if you're not a Christian, what if you just start thinking and saying, God, if you're real, if you're real, I'd love to experience you. 
And what if you are a Christian and we've li- you've lived in this manufacturing world of your religion and instead go, God, if you're real, can I just, I believe you're real, can I just enjoy you and experience you? Can I, can I have all of you, right? Like just seek first. And so what I was thinking, I was thinking, you know, this whole series is about putting feet to making the better choice. This week's a little different. I don't want to give you any feet. I actually want to take them away. No steps. No moves forward. Just to be in his presence. What if you could really experience him and be loved by him? What if his Holy Spirit really is real and his Holy Spirit can offer a lot more comfort than whatever words I share here? What if the Spirit of the living God could just land with you and you could just sit at his feet? Because I think that's what this passage is saying. I think when you decide to uh, not worry about many things, not be focused on many things, and just for a second, pause and experience him. So what I've been asking the Lord all week, God, would you, if you're in your living room, if you're in your car, if you're in your office, wherever you are, just for a second, could we experience this? And so the band's going to come up, and we're going to sing a song together. But I, if you want to stand at some point, you're welcome to. But just for a moment, just for a moment, could you just be still before God? Right? And I, I'm so confident in His Spirit that if you just come about this with humility and go, God, I, I think I've just been focused on my kingdom, but if you really are there and there really is a kingdom, would you allow me to experience you. I think you will. I really do. His Spirit loves you. God misses you. God misses you. So would you do that? And here's some words that we're going to sing. Let me read them to you. I'm caught up in your presence. I just want to sit here at your feet. I'm caught up in this holy moment. I never want to leave. Oh, I'm not here for blessings. I'm not here for blessings. I'm not here because you're my genie in the bottle, God. I'm not here for blessings. Jesus, you don't owe me anything. More than anything that you can do, I just want you. Do you mean that? Because I didn't a year ago. I just didn't. I wanted to mean it, but I didn't mean it. So even if you go, God, I want to mean this, but it's so hard. I don't just want you. I want the things that you do for me, God. I want salvation and eternity guaranteed. And he said, no, 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 no. Could you offer yourself and go, God, I just want to want you. I want you to be the good portion. So they're going to lead us. We're going to pause. If you decide, I feel like the Spirit wants you to stand up and sing, stand up and sing. But if you just want to sit still, really, really great time. Even if you don't want to sing the words and these are words, just pop up and go, oh, I really do need to talk to God about that, then just talk to him about it. We're just going to create some space for you now. Would you guys lead us?
So, um, in the Psalms it says, Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. And so what I'm going to do, I just want to pray that you would this week, pray over you in this moment just to pause and pray that you would experience a day in God's courts. Because you're welcome there. And he misses you. And so if you're in our sanctuary right now or out in the parking lot or in your home, I just if you just had that moment, you go, God, I just don't want to leave yet. You're welcome just to stay put wherever you are in the parking lot or even in our sanctuary. And we'll dedicate some space. And so if you're in our sanctuary, we'll just move on out before you start talking. Just in case some people are just really, maybe for the first time or for the first time in a long time, experiencing God's presence. And so would you allow me to pray a blessing over you now? Oh, Jesus. Um, I so believe that passage, God, that better is one day in your court, better is one day experience your kingdom. It's better than a thousand days elsewhere, God, and love that term better. And I pray today, God, that we would choose the better, that we would sit at your feet. So God, um, for every single person right now, God, would you um, fill them with your presence, wrap your love around them, would they receive your good portion in only the way that you can give it, Lord? So would you give us your good portion? And will we be fully satisfied in you today, God, and throughout this week? And would you be most glorified in us because of it? We thank you for your salvation, Jesus. And we thank you for your presence. And we thank you for your spirit. May you help us sit at your feet all week long. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.
Love you guys. Be well. Be blessed. And we'll see you next week. She's the fear of 